2: Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
3: June 7th, 1892, New Orleans, Louisiana. A 30-year-old black man named Homer Plessy buys a ticket for the 415 train to Covington. The train arrives at the station on the corner of Press and Royal, and it is made up of cars for white passengers and cars for black passengers. Plessy steps into the car for white passengers and takes a seat. The conductor asks Plessy his race. Plessy tells him. And then the conductor insists he has to move to the car for black riders. Plessy refuses. And a detective who just happens to be there arrests Plessy and removes him from the car these are the events that resulted in a landmark supreme court decision an anti-canon decision one universally agreed upon as a mistake a decision that i thought i knew about but was dead wrong you're listening to civics 101 i'm nick capodice
2: i'm hannah mccarthy
3: and today we're talking about an event that was not just an individual act of protest an arrest that was anything but coincidental and, contrary to what I've learned beforehand, a decision that did not establish the separate but equal doctrine. Placivi Ferguson, 1896.
2: So far, Nick, you've talked a lot about what this case is not. Can we start with what it is?
3: Yeah. In 1890, the state of Louisiana passed the Separate Car Act. This was one of the state's Jim Crow laws, anti-black laws that enforce segregation. And this act required that trains have, quote, equal but separate accommodations for black and white passengers. But before we get started in this case, the history of separation goes way back.
4: Separation, which is the word they used in the 19th century, as a concept was really born in the north on a railroad line that went from Boston to Salem Opened in 1838.
3: This is Stephen Luxenberg, associate editor of the Washington Post and author of Separate, the story of Plessy v. Ferguson and America's journey from slavery to segregation.
4: And throughout the North before the Civil War, there were instances of separation on public transportation. There were people fighting against that, mostly from the abolitionist movement, the group of radicals that said that slavery should be abolished right now. Some of the precedents later cited in Plessy come from the north before the Civil War, where courts ruled that separation was allowable. It was a reasonable rule by the railroad.
2: So separation, which we later referred to as segregation, it came out of the north.
3: It did. Stephen told me that separation wasn't possible in states that were practicing enslavement.
4: But there were always people fighting resisting in the 19th century against slavery first, then against civil rights uh, violations. Everything is new in this era. Everything is new. The The famous black journalist Ida B. Wells, as a 20-year-old is refusing in 1882 to ride in the, quote, colored car. She's not got anybody behind her. She's, she sues twice. She gets to the Tennessee Supreme Court, she loses. Um, Kind of the deck is rigged against her, she learns.
3: Ida B. Wells' act of brave resistance was 10 years before Homer Plessy got on that train in New Orleans. She was initially awarded $500 in damages, but the Tennessee State Supreme Court overturned it and she was forced to repay the money as well as court fees.
2: Okay, so Ida B. Wells is one of the first to challenge these civil rights issues in the courts. And when Steve says everything is new, what does he mean?
3: The nation was struggling to figure out how to make the Reconstruction Amendments, the newly passed 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments, actually apply. And this happened when people like Wells put their bodies on the line. But while her protest was an individual action, Plessy's, was not.
2: okay. right. And getting back to Homer Plessy on that day in 1892, what do we know about him? And who was Ferguson?
0: Homer Plessy was a Creole African descent gentleman who was born on March the 17th. That was St. Patrick's Day. My name is Keith Plessy, and I am a fourth generation descendant of Homer Plessy. Judge Ferguson was not from New Orleans. He was not from Louisiana. Judge Ferguson was born on Martha's Vineyard. My name is Phoebe Ferguson, and I am the great, great granddaughter of
5: Judge John Howard Ferguson.
3: Keith and Phoebe head the Plessy and Ferguson Foundation. They visit schools and institutions across the country to share the story of the case and their message that mutual history can be a tool to create unity and
0: understanding. It's no longer Plessy versus Ferguson, it's Plessy and Ferguson. Homer Plessy's father died at a young age,
3: and his mother remarried a shoemaker named Victor Dupart. And Homer learned to be a shoemaker
0: from his stepfather,
3: but he also went with him to community meetings where he learned about civil rights activism.
0: When the laws came out, he had already been an activist in the neighborhood, in the Treme neighborhood, for he was advocating to keep public schools open.
3: Homer Plessy joined the Comité de Citoyens in Louisiana, which I will refer to here on out as the Citizens Committee. Their full title actually is a bit longer. Steve Luxenberg found their original stationery.
4: They needed a PR person to tell them to get a better name that was easier to say. But the stationery was the committee to challenge the constitutionality of the separate car act.
2: The committee's sole purpose was to challenge this one law.
4: Yeah.
3: And they ran test cases, carefully orchestrated events to purposefully violate the law. And Plessy offered to be the second test.
0: He looked like a white person. So that was one of the criteria of his volunteering for that protest. And when he approached the train depot, no one noticed him as a person of color. He purchased that ticket without any dispute, boarded the first-class train car that was designated for whites only, and sat down, and no one was disturbed by his presence. But when the conductor approached him and asked him was he a colored man he responded yes and he said you would have to move to the car for your race and he refused so the arresting officer cc kane stepped up and removed him from the train it made it look real good it was it was orchestrated well so they threw him off the train physically They didn't make it look like it was a nice departure for him.
2: Everybody was in on it.
3: Everybody was in on it. The conductor's actions were rehearsed. The Citizens Committee hired that detective to arrest him and write a report. Even the railroad company itself was involved and in support of it because, for one thing, it was more expensive to have separate cars.
0: In those days, if you were interrupting, which was probably one of the most uh, prominent and busy depots, the Press Street Wharf, He interrupted business that brought the cotton to be processed to the train depot that day. Normally, a person that did something like that in those times would have been hung from a tree, might have never made it to jail, uh, but he was safely whisked off to jail where he was booked and then he was able to pay the fine after a night in jail to get out because the bail was set for him and the money was set, the budget was set to remove him from jail.
2: So Homer Plessy is arrested and released on bail. How does this case get to the Supreme Court?
3: The first trial was Homer Adolph Plessy v. the state of Louisiana. And his lawyers argue that the Separate Train Car Act violated Homer Plessy's rights under the 13th and 14th amendments. And the judge who heard the case? John Howard Ferguson.
2: There's Ferguson. They make a presentation.
0: Judge Ferguson says, says you've made a very good presentation and I would like to go think about that. We will rejoin in two weeks. In two weeks, they come back to the court. Judge Ferguson says he's considered. However, He decides that Louisiana's law, our state, you know, our state's rights and the state has the right to determine whether or not black and white passengers can ride together. So he upholds Louisiana state law. The
3: Citizens Committee appealed it to the state Supreme Court, which upheld Ferguson's decision. And finally, in 1896, they appealed it to the United States Supreme Court, which ruled in favor
0: of Judge Ferguson. Pandora makes it easy for you to find your favorite music. Discover new artists and genres by selecting any song or album, and we'll make you a personalized station for free. Download on the Apple App Store or Google Play and enjoy the soundtrack to your life.
3: Hey there, everyone. Hey, folks. The whole Civics 101 team is here in D.C. for a week. That's why you hear cars and stuff whizzing by. Uh, We are in the district to talk to the people that we talk about on a daily basis. And a lot of those people work in the executive branch.
2: That is the largest employer in the world.
3: And a lot of those people work in the civil service, where, after the assassination of James Garfield, it's a long story, they take an exam to make sure that they are the right person for their job.
2: But if you run a business, and you're not the federal government, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all, but to match instead with Indeed.
3: 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites.
2: 23 hires are made on Indeed every minute and their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences so the more you use it the better it gets.
3: And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash civics.
2: Just go to Indeed.com slash civics right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast.
3: Indeed.com slash civics. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire, you need Indeed. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer
0: Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call.
2: What was the vote?
3: 7 to 1. One judge abstained because he had a sick family member at the time. The opinion was written by Justice Henry Billings Brown, and the lone dissenter was Justice John Marshall
5: Harlan. John Marshall Harlan, the former slave owner, is the person who dissents in Plessy versus Ferguson, and Henry Billings Brown, who's from Massachusetts, you know, the kind of cradle of abolition, who's gone to Yale and Harvard Law School. Is the one who writes the majority opinion. Um, so irony of ironies.
3: This is Kenneth Mack. He's the inaugural Lawrence D. Beale Professor of Law and Affiliate Professor of History at Harvard University. He walked me through Justice
5: Brown's opinion. You know the, the basic claim of Plessy and his lawyers is that you know the statute's unconstitutional under the Fourteenth Amendment because it's discriminatory against African Americans. Brown has to figure out. A bunch of things. First, he talks about political versus social equality. This is all over the rhetoric of white Southerners, judges, um, lots of people after the Civil War. They say that the 14th and 15th Amendments gave African Americans civil and political equality, but they didn't give them social equality. And they say this all the time. What they really mean is that If we don't want to associate with black people, we don't have to associate with black people. We don't have to accept black people into our houses. We don't have to be friends with black people. The law can't make us do that. Well, the question is, well, is a a statute that says that you have to sit in separate coaches by race, is that about social equality? What's a piece of legislation? That's not white people choosing not to be friends with black people. That's a state law saying that Black people and white people can't sit in the same coach. So white Southerners reason from the kind of social equality argument to the fact that they they can pass statutes mandating that people be separate by race within uh, state-sponsored institutions like schools or, or within private institutions like railroad cars. And they say that's the same thing as that that's just social. The law is just about social equality. It's not about civil or political equality, which are the things that the 14th and 15th Amendments cover.
2: Justice Brown is saying that this law is not about civil or political equality. It's about unenforceable social equality.
3: Yes. And to further justify it, he points to a number of previous cases that said railroads could separate passengers. But there is a problem with that.
5: The problem is... But almost all of those cases are before the Civil War. So the question is, well, you know, did the 14th Amendment change that? And Brown just sort of blinks that. He doesn't acknowledge that actually the 14th Amendment did something. Kenneth said it was an extremely
3: narrow, extremely specific, minute reading of the 14th Amendment, where he acknowledged, yes, the amendment was created to enforce equality, but that it, quote, could not have been intended to abolish distinction based upon color. And then we come to the lone, now famous, dissent of Justice Harlan.
5: I mean, I think Harlan's making two or three points. One is that the 13th and 14th Amendments changed things. Um, That they gave new constitutional rights that weren't there before. And that they were supposed to change both the framework of citizenship and the racial order you know so before these were enacted you know you could use law you could segregate you could you could make white people superior but 13th and 14th amendments changed things and the second thing he's saying is basically this is not neutral everybody knows why the statute was enacted everybody knows the symbolic import of this it's to keep black people out of railroad cars where white people ride because Black people are presumed to be inferior. He's saying, well, you can't use law to erect white supremacy. And he's saying that's what this statute does.
3: I want to quickly add here, this was not Harlan's first dissent on this subject. He was the only dissent in what is called the Civil Rights Cases of 1883, uh, a decision that said that the federal government could not outlaw racial discrimination by private individuals. In 1906, uh, he gave his family Bible to the Supreme Court. And since then, every single justice has signed their name within it. Justice David Souter said that signing his name in the Harlan Bible was, quote, the most humbling thing I have ever done in my entire life.
2: Something that you mentioned earlier that I want to get straight is that you thought this was a case that cemented the separate but equal doctrine. But you learned that that's not necessarily true.
3: Yeah, it is. And it isn't true. This decision, in essence, yes, prevented the constitutional challenges to racial segregation for over half a century. And the words separate but equal doctrine were on my Plessy v. Ferguson flashcards in school, but Steve Luxembourg corrected this for me.
4: So I see a lot of the shorthand that my journalistic brethren use is the Supreme Court established the doctrine of separate but equal and made it the law of the land. And for Civics 101, Let's talk about both parts of that sentence. What is a doctrine? We can give it a lot of synonyms, an order, an established set of rules. What you would expect if the Supreme Court had established a doctrine, that there would be a clear doctrine in the majority opinion. But if you read the majority opinion, there's no doctrine. Now, did it have the effect of sanctioning a custom that had been going on? Yes, it had that effect. Did the Supreme Court make it the law of the land? It's the judicial branch, it's not the legislative branch. It can't make laws. You can say, Steve, you're parsing words here, didn't it have the effect of being the law of the land? And the answer is no, it didn't, really did not. Why? Because it was a state legislature acting in Louisiana. Other state legislatures had to act to create laws that were similar. They. They did in some cases, but not everywhere, not the law of the land.
3: Steve says the blame for separate does not lie with this case.
4: If we lay the blame on those nine justices of the Supreme Court, or eight justices in this case, of the Supreme Court, we are taking ourselves off of the hook. We have to own the doctrine of separate but equal, which began in the North in the 1830s. We have to accept that it was already the custom of the country, not the Supreme Court's fault. It is all of our faults.
3: And to reinforce what Steve's saying here, the words separate but equal are nowhere in Justice Brown's decision.
2: Nick, before we wrap up, you know, we always try to find modern reverberations of these Supreme Court opinions. And I know that the. Plessy decision was overturned in 1954 in Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, the case that started the path to desegregation. But is there anything from Plessy that is still with us today?
5: Kenneth
3: Mack left me with this.
5: It's quite relevant today. The case was about how to think about laws or public policies that were alleged to be discriminatory against one race, in particular discriminatory against African-Americans who had historically been discriminated against. The court goes out of its way to say that the law was neutral, the segregation statute was neutral. Sometimes it it looks as though we can find a non-discriminatory neutral purpose, but to do that is simply to blink reality. So, for instance, um, you know, the recent Georgia voting statute. In Georgia Republican lawmakers have passed a law on a party line vote all overhauling the election rules in that state. They say the law will help protect against voter fraud, but Democrats and critics say the law disenfranchises primarily people of color and that fraud claims have no basis in fact. You know, is this a neutral enactment or? Is this an enactment where, if you look at the context, we all know who the enactment will fall most heavily on? And we can always articulate neutral reasons for these things. And, in fact, that's the lesson of Plessy, that a bunch of very, very smart Supreme Court justices can articulate neutral reasons, that the larger society could articulate neutral reasons and that it's necessary to dig a little deeper and to look at the context, the way that Harlan looked at it, to figure out what's really going on.
2: I think one of the major things I take away from this story is that from Ida B. Wells, to Homer Plessy, to Claudette Colvin, to the four students who sat down at a Woolworth's lunch counter in Greensboro, So much of the long civil rights movement involves acts of sacrifice, of people being told to move and saying no.
3: That is a picture wrap on Plessy v. Ferguson. We got more civil rights cases in the Supreme Court headed your way. So stay a while and listen. Today's episode was produced by me, Nick Capadice, with Hannah McCarthy. Our staff includes Jackie Fulton, and Erica Janick is our executive producer. Music in this episode by Young Karts, Scott Holmes, Ikimashu Oi, and Chris Zabriskie. To hear about the other cases in this series, or to hear any of our hundreds of episodes, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. You can also visit our website, cibix101podcast.org. All of our new episodes have materials for educators teaching these subjects. And while we're here, why not be our friend on Twitter, at Civics101Pod. Come on by, say hello. Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and is a production of NHPR,
0: New Hampshire Public Radio.
3: Djibout.
0: Pandora makes it easy for you to find your favorite music. Discover new artists and genres by selecting any song or album and we'll make you a personalized station for free. Download on the Apple App Store or Google Play and enjoy the soundtrack to your life.
1: The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life.